to love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children. And we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. Let's pray again. Help us, Lord, to be people who have tasted in your goodness. Help us to be people who revel in your goodness. God, we pray that, that you would deliver us from the fear of having nothing, from the love of comfort. Lord, help us this morning as we stutter your word to trust you more fully and to rejoice more deeply. God, help us today to learn to enter your rest. Lord, I pray that, that, uh, that these words I say would not be my ideas, but that they would be your ideas, and that each of us would be transformed as we study your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning again. Uh, my name is Jesse. I'm the, the worship arts pastor here, and uh, I'm really happy to be able to to be able to study God's Word with you today. I, I like that song that we were just singing. We've sung it here a couple times. Maybe we should sing it more. I like that song because it helps me to worship God in the middle of everyday, mundane kind of life. And when you look at the Bibles, say you look at the Psalms, that's what the Psalms are all about. It's about crying out to God in whatever circumstance you're in, thanking Him in whatever circumstance you're in, viewing your present life as an opportunity to worship God. And I like that song because uh, I don't know about you, every day I need to taste and to experience God's goodness in a new way. And every day I need to be delivered in some sense from my own wants and fears and to be delivered into God's goodness instead. So the first line of that song has that line uh, about being, being delivered from the love. Testing. There we go. Being delivered from the love of my own comfort and from the fear of having nothing. And I think that's a line that kind of gets at something that has gone wrong in our society. It, it points at kind of a malaise in our, in our day and age. Uh, we do have this tangle of fear of having nothing and this disordered love of our own comfort. And these things together drive us to become busy, frantic people. As a culture, we are working longer than anyone has ever worked. And when we're not at work, we're often still working. When people come home from work, they're still checking emails, answering calls, responding to the tyranny of the urgent on their smartphones and computers and all of these different things. Everything is busy. Even our leisure time is busy. Uh, when you are at home, you are subjected to this barrage of smartphone notifications and trending problems on social media that you're supposed to respond to and be involved with. And probably for many people in this room, a huge list of volunteer obligations that you are excited to be a part of, 
but probably can't quite fully meet. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had this experience of uh, you have some kind of event or engagement of some sort planned, scheduled, and then for some reason it gets canceled? Maybe it's snowed a lot and the roads aren't drivable or somebody's sick or something like that. And even though this was something that you decided to do, you were excited about it, this thing gets canceled, and there's a little part of you that's kind of relieved. Have you felt that feeling? Like, I was looking forward to this, but now I get to stay home and relax, and I actually feel pretty good about that. Well, that is a symptom of the incredible busyness of our age. And these are very busy times we live in, and somehow we have all just accepted busyness as being a fact of life. You can tell this if, uh, if you meet somebody in the hallway today and you ask how they're doing, there's a pretty good chance they'll respond with the word busy. But you can tell whether that's good or bad based on how they say it. They might say, busy, yeah, got a lot going on this fall, it's a good time. Or they might pause for a second and say, busy. And you know they're a little overwhelmed by everything that's going on. The 21st century lifestyle has left us overworked, underslept, and often too deep in debt to really think of any other way of living. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians 2,000 years ago, make the most of the time for the days are evil. And I can't help wondering what he would have to say to us in 2019. So what are we going to do about all of this terrible busyness that we are subject to? There are a lot of ideas. You could go across the street and buy books about how to manage your schedule and, and deal with all this busyness. Or you could go on YouTube and watch TED Talks and somebody would promise you something like, today I'm going to teach you a new schedule management system that's going to allow you to maximize every spare second of your day so you can fit even more things into your calendar and accomplish even more. And if you do this and it works, you will be more busy than you were before. Then you need some kind of new system. It's not a way out at all. So I'm not here to tell you about any kind of new schedule management systems. I'm here to tell you about something very old, what you see on the screen, practicing the Sabbath. So here's where we're going today. I'll just give you the big idea right up front. The practice of Sabbath rest is the antidote to our culture's toxic need to be busy. In a culture that says, worship your own comfort, trust in your own efforts, the practice of Sabbath rest teaches us instead to enjoy God and to trust in him. Now, sometimes you get to hear a sermon uh, from somebody who's really an expert in the thing that they're talking about. Like maybe you hear Joanna Lima talk about the call to mission and you think, I'm getting to learn from her experience and her great wisdom and all of that. Uh, I'm not an expert in this. In fact, I'm more often than not, a failure in practicing the Sabbath. And so I'm doing this message today not because I have something special to tell you about you guys should imitate me. I'm doing this message because I need to hear it. I need my thinking and my habits to be changed by God's word. And I'm guessing that some of you are in the same boat. If you're not, if you've already mastered what it means to practice the Sabbath, you might as well go home. This won't be all that helpful to you. But for the rest of us... Uh, I think I'm probably not the only one who has some things to, to learn, some things to, to rediscover. So if you are, I don't know, a new Christian or new to this idea of Sabbath, you might have this question. You might wonder, you know, what exactly is the Sabbath? Isn't that just 
another word for Saturday or Sunday, maybe. I'm not quite totally sure. So here's a little bit of background. In the Old Testament, Genesis 1, first page of the Bible, you're told that God made the earth in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. And then way after that, Moses tells the Israelites a bunch of times that this rest is supposed to be a pattern for them. On the seventh day of each week, they are supposed to rest and do no work, and this day of rest is called the Sabbath. And so you'll remember this comes up in the Ten Commandments, which we talked about this summer. Here's what the Ten Commandments say. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. So that's the Sabbath. It's a day of rest initiated by God at the creation of the universe. And it's supposed to be one of the things that God's people are in the habit of doing. It's one of the ways in which they're described. So way, way after Moses, hundreds of years later, during the time of Jesus, people are kind of debating about what exactly it means to, to do this. Right? What does it mean to keep the Sabbath holy? And there's a group of teachers who had come up with 39 rules for kinds of work that could not be done on the Sabbath. And the idea is, if you avoid doing these 39 things, then you will be keeping the Sabbath holy. And a lot of them had to do with food preparation. And they would say, like, uh, on the Sabbath, you're not allowed to harvest grain, and you're not allowed to grind grain, and that kind of stuff. And others were different. They had some rules about uh, practicing medicine. So if somebody is uh, mortally wounded and they're bleeding everywhere, you are allowed to put a bandage on that wound to stop the bleeding. But... If somebody has a broken bone and that bone needs to be reset, that would require some physical effort and qualifies as a kind of work. So you've got to wait till the next day to reset that bone, which doesn't seem like fun. Uh, so when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the stories of Jesus' life, you see again and again there are conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders of his time about the Sabbath, and they're saying that he's breaking the Sabbath, and he's saying he's not. And this is really what the conflict is about. They're saying, we've got this list, 39 things you're not supposed to do, and you don't seem to be paying that much attention to that. Have you disregarded the Sabbath entirely? And of course, Jesus has not disregarded the Sabbath. He has a, a different idea of what it means to keep the Sabbath. So we're going to look at one of those stories today. You can open your Bibles to Matthew eleven twenty eight, or I'll read it aloud and you can just listen. Either way is fine. But Matthew eleven twenty eight, and so a little bit of background while you're turning there. In this story, Jesus is walking with his disciples, and it's the Sabbath. They're on their way to the synagogue for Sabbath prayers, the reading of Scripture. And as he's walking, there are some people following because Jesus is teaching and it's interesting. And the Pharisees are in this group. And so the Pharisees are, are walking, and they're trying to figure out whether or not Jesus actually follows the laws of the Testament, the Old Testament, in the way that they do. So that's what's going on. And I'm going to start at uh, Matthew 11, verse 28, which is kind of the tail end of Jesus' teaching here. And I just like this passage, so I started there. Verse 28, "'Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest.'" Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, already this sounds pretty different from a list of 39 rules, right? Jesus is talking about something different. Let's keep reading in chapter 12. At that time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, See, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? How he entered the house of God and they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or for those with him to eat, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. I'll stop right there. So this is a pretty typical interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus does something, and then they say, hey, wait a minute, you're violating the teaching of Scripture. And then Jesus uses Scripture to say, actually, no, I'm not. You've just misunderstood. And so here, Jesus and his disciples, they're plucking heads of wheat and kind of like eating them as they walk through the fields. You and I probably wouldn't say that's work. We wouldn't look at them and say they're engaged in an act of labor right now. But for the Pharisees, they say, wait a minute, we've got these 39 rules. And included in there is you cannot harvest grain. And they're plucking the heads of grain. That qualifies as harvest. And you cannot grind it. And they're breaking it apart. And they're, they're chewing it up. And they are working. They're violating the Sabbath. Right? And then if you keep reading, next up, Jesus gets to the synagogue, and there's somebody who's crippled, and Jesus heals him. And they say, wait a minute, we've got laws about practicing medicine on the Sabbath, and you are violating those too. So this is a big problem for them. Now, some Christians have read passages like this, and they've said, oh, I see. So Jesus has done away with the need to keep the Sabbath holy. That was old covenant stuff and doesn't apply anymore. Jesus has introduced a new covenant now we don't have to keep the Sabbath. I'm not sure where this kind of argument is supposed to go because then you get to say, yay, now I get to work every single day of my life until I die early of a stress-induced illness. That doesn't sound like good news, does it? And I kind of think Jesus is all about good news, so maybe we should look a little bit more closely. I want you to notice a couple things. First, Jesus is observing the Sabbath. He's participating in the Sabbath. He's not ignoring or doing away with it. He's keeping it holy by going to the synagogue for the traditional prayer and the teaching of Scripture. He's participating. And this applies every time the Pharisees have these debates with Jesus about the Sabbath. Keep in mind the context is Jesus is observing the Sabbath. He is participating the problem for them is that he's not doing it in the same way that they expect him to. So he hasn't done away with it. Second, notice that Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. A good question to ask is, if he planned to do away with it, why would he want to be Lord of it? Nobody wants to be Lord of something that doesn't matter anymore. We should read it this way. The Lord, Jesus saying he's the Lord of the Sabbath is kind of a statement of his divine nature. Right? The Sabbath is initiated by God at creation. The Old Testament says again and again, the Sabbath is given unto the Lord. When Jesus says he is Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying something about his nature. He's saying something 
about who he is. He's not just a teacher. I think he's also making a pretty powerful statement about the value that the Sabbath will have for his believers, right? Everybody in this room, we are people who say, Jesus is Lord. And when Jesus says he's the Lord of the Sabbath, we should stop and think, well, maybe that means the Sabbath is, is in some way important, right? It's not to be ignored. Third, as Jesus often does, he uses a bunch of Old Testament references to explain what he's doing, uh, which is very meaningful for the Pharisees because they were all about recovering the, old, the, the teachings of Scripture. And so Jesus uses this to teach them. I don't have time to tell all of these stories, but just in case you want to look them up later, Jesus talks about David stealing this sacred bread. It's a pretty cool story. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 21. You could read it this afternoon. Or Jesus talks about the, the priests violating the Sabbath. Well, that has to do with the idea on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to work, but the book of Leviticus is full of instructions for what the priests are supposed to do on the Sabbath. They've got a lot of work to do. It's their big day, right? And so... Jesus is pointing out this conflict. Uh, I want to look, though, a little bit at the third Old Testament reference Jesus has here. He says this, uh, If you had known instead what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is actually the second time that Jesus has used this quote with the Pharisees. The first time is in Matthew chapter 9, which uh, Pastor Russell preached from two weeks ago. So in Matthew 9, Jesus is having dinner with a bunch of disreputable people, sinners and tax collectors and people that you wouldn't want to be caught hanging out with. And the Pharisees ask him why he's hanging out with these people. And Jesus says, what? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And here he says it again. Why is he saying this thing that seems kind of not all that relevant to the situation at hand? Well, it's from the Old Testament. It's a quote from the prophet Hosea, hundreds of years before Jesus. So the prophet Hosea has this message. He, he comes to the people of Israel and he says, listen, you have a calling. You were made by God to be a certain kind of people, to be different from other nations in fundamental ways so that you could be a blessing to the other nations. And a lot of that has to do with the way that you worship. And in Hosea's time, the people weren't quite getting it right. So Jesus is quoting this saying, these are days like Hosea's day. We're not quite getting it right here. Uh, and uh, specifically, this quote comes from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And Hosea chapter 6 is all about God's people have lost their way and God wants them to return to him. Uh, specifically, it's kind of about the people have been going through the motions of worship. They're performing the right rituals. They're doing these sacrifices and fasts and things. But God didn't want the rituals if their hearts weren't engaged. He wanted worship that came from the heart. And so Jesus is quoting this passage that the Pharisees would have known quite well to show that the people of his time, just like the people of Hosea's time, were failing to do what God had called them to do. They were meant to be a kingdom of priests. They were formed to be a nation which demonstrated for the world a new way to live and worship as God's people. And instead, they're messing around with petty things like making lists of rules about how not to work on Saturdays. The Sabbath was never intended to be a list of rules to be kept. In Exodus 31, 
the Lord tells Moses that the Sabbath would be a sign or a marker between God and his people, and that by keeping it, they would know they belong to him. God's people are Sabbath people, and the keeping of the Sabbath marks and identifies and even shapes them. And so Jesus is quoting this to say, return to the Lord, return to the heart of what this practice is meant to be. Don't go through the motions. Put your whole being into it. They're supposed to be shaped by the Sabbath. So Jesus is inventing a new concept of what it means to keep the Sabbath. Rather, his teaching and his practice are a return to the original idea. After all, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the originator of the whole thing. And so he's telling the Pharisees, quit playing religious games and return to the ancient defining practice of Sabbath. He's calling them to quit trying to figure out what is the least they can get by with to meet the letter of the law and to return wholeheartedly to being Sabbath people. And I'm going to argue that the practice of Sabbath rest is not an obligation for us, but it's something that in Christ we are free to do. It's a gift. I'm going to say that, that for us the Sabbath is still meant to be, the idea of Sabbath rest is still meant to be a defining, shaping practice for us, just like it was for people in Moses' time and in Hosea's time and in Jesus' time. To put it more negatively, to ignore the Sabbath is to ignore one of the means by which God shapes us as a people into the image of Jesus. We're meant to be people who are marked and shaped by the practice of Sabbath rest. Uh, and there are a lot of different ways that this happens, but for the sake of time, we're just going to look at three of them. Trust, joy, and hope. So here's the first one. Trust. Practicing Sabbath rest is a dangerous thing, and it always has been. Think about way back in the day in an agricultural society, what it must have meant to observe the Sabbath. Imagine being a farmer who is told that for 24 hours each week, you're not going to do any work. This would, it would immediately occur to you, this could be the difference between having enough to eat and starving for the rest of the year, right? If, if, if your crops are ready to harvest and it's the Sabbath today and the sky is looking threatening and you're thinking a storm may come through tomorrow and ruin my whole crop if I don't harvest it today, to choose Sabbath rest on that day means that you are putting a lot of trust in God. You're saying that God is going to provide for my needs, and I believe that so much, I'm going to take this big risk, right? And in fact, this concern was more serious than it looks at first, because not only are people instructed to observe a Sabbath every week, Leviticus 25 shows us that the land itself is to be given a Sabbath. Every seventh year, the Israelites were instructed to not plant anything in their fields, Instead, they save food from the previous year and they get by on whatever randomly grows in these unplanted fields. That's a risk. It requires trust in God. And then add to this that all of the feast days, and there were a lot of them, were to be treated as a time of Sabbath. And the year of Jubilee every 49 years, 50 years, is to be treated as a, a Sabbath in, in some senses. This requires a lot of trust to put so much of your time as a gift to the Lord, to rest and not depend on your own work. Um, I don't think that, that too many of us really know quite what it's like to be 
to worry about food, right? We, we don't necessarily relate to the dilemma of ancient farmers in this sense, but we know a lot about how difficult it can be to let go of our work. Uh, have you ever thought, like, I just need a break, and I'll take a break as soon as I finish this one thing I've got left to do? After I finish responding to these emails, or after I fold this laundry, after I run these errands, whatever it is, rest is always something just ahead. Just after I do this thing, then I'll rest. You ever been to an old diner that has like bric-a-brac all around the walls, and sometimes they have a tacky sign that says, free beer tomorrow. It's because tomorrow never comes, it's always today. The beer is always tomorrow, today you have to pay. Right? We do that with rest sometimes. We say, I'll rest tomorrow after I finish what I have to do today. After all, there's just so much to do, it's not practical, it's foolish to do nothing. I think one reason for this tendency is that in some way we are afraid of rest. We're afraid to not be doing something because we think if we're not doing something, maybe we might not quite be ourselves anymore. Um, here's, here's what I mean. If you meet somebody new today, very likely one of the first questions you ask will be, what do you do? We find our identities in some way in the things that we do. We say, I'm a teacher, I'm a doctor, I'm a stay-at-home parent, whatever. Practicing Sabbath rest means that for one day, our sense of identity does not come from what we do, it comes from who we belong to. And this can be a really terrible destabilizing feeling until we learn to trust in God. And this is why I've referred to this as the practice of Sabbath. I don't think most of us are naturally all that good at this. So learning to let go and find ourselves in God is a skill that is developed over time with the rhythm of Sabbath. Practicing Sabbath rest means we take one day each week to say, I'm going to choose today to put my identity and my future and everything I am and have and have to do in the hands of God. That requires a lot of trust, right? Uh, here's another one, joy. As much as practicing Sabbath rest can be a scary, dangerous thing that teaches us to trust in God, it's also an act of supreme joy. Think about this. The, the model for Sabbath rest is the seventh day of creation. And so when you read the days of creation, God makes something, and then at the end of the day, he says, it is good. And on the sixth day, he's finished making everything, including human beings, and he looks and he says, it's very good. And then he rests on the seventh day. Why do you think God rests? Is he, like, worn out from all the work of creation? Is he exhausted? Of course not. The whole point of the story is that God is so powerful, he just speaks, and things come into being that never were before. He's not exhausted. This is, in some sense, effortless for him. God is not tired on the second day and needing to recover. He's satisfied on the second day. It's a day for him to enjoy what he has made. Uh, anybody who has ever at some point been a new parent or known a new parent can relate to this in some sense. Um, it's been this way for all of our kids. A, a year and a half ago, we had our daughter, Eden. And when she was born, it was like, finally, she's here. And I remember there was this time of just looking at her a lot. There wasn't anything to do. She was just to be enjoyed. There was this sense of satisfaction and gratitude, joy. 
right? And, and so we can relate to God in a little, bit, a little bit in this sense. Our Sabbath is patterned after God's rest. It's a time for satisfaction, for gratitude, for joy, for looking at what is made and saying, this is very good. Uh, Eugene Peterson writes on that the Sabbath is the time when we get to join God in creation because we can't exactly speak worlds into existence, but we can do this. We can look at what God has made and say with him, this is very good. This is to be enjoyed. I think this has to be part of what it means to keep the Sabbath holy because every other day of the week, we're trying to accomplish things ourselves. But on this day, we step back We try to notice what God has done, and we say, it's good. It's very good. It's a day for rejoicing. And this is a practice. Learning to look with gratitude and wonder at what God has done does not often come naturally for us. We sometimes find it easy to look at the problems in the world or at our own accomplishments and failures, but we sometimes find it difficult in our fallen nature to fully appreciate what God has done, what he continues to create around us. And so we need to be formed and reformed by the regular weekly practice of Sabbath, by learning to look for God's creative work around us and to give thanks. Here's one more. Hope. It's interesting to note that the Sabbath is patterned after the seventh day of creation and not the first day. Sometimes it's tempting to look at the idea of Sabbath rest from a purely practical viewpoint. Your body needs rest so that it can do things. And so you rest so that the rest of the week you can go out and accomplish all sorts of things. And that's that's partly true. There there is some truth to that. But it's not only about that. It's... uh, The rabbi Abraham Heschel puts it this way. He says, man is not a beast of burden, and the Sabbath is not for the purpose of enhancing the efficiency of his work. The idea that the Sabbath comes on the seventh day of creation, on the last day of creation, should be a clue to us that the Sabbath is a destination more than a place to begin. I'm not trying to argue here about what day of the week the Sabbath should be. I'm trying to argue that it should be something that we are looking forward to, we are moving into. Uh, Again, Heschel writes that the Sabbath day is a foretaste of paradise. It's a metaphor for the paradise to come and a testimony to God's presence with us in the here and now. In some sense, the Sabbath contains within it the movement of redemption from the darkness of the past to the bright hope of the future. You can see this in Deuteronomy 5, this instruction to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy is repeated and followed immediately by a reminder that God rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. The connection is pretty clear. Enjoy this day of rest, remembering that once you didn't have a choice of whether or not to work. Somebody else told you to work. And now you you have this freedom. You have the ability to, to rest. And this this metaphor should be even more potent for us today because each of us in this room was once a slave to sin and to death. And now we get to experience this ultimate freedom in Jesus. And the practice of Sabbath rest is a weekly reminder of that freedom. It's tangible. It's time-bound picture of that freedom. Uh, For the writer of Hebrews, the Sabbath rest becomes a pattern or a picture of the greater rest that that Jesus invites us to enter into. It's almost like a location in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Think about the the new Jerusalem in the book of Revelation. 
It's kind of the ultimate expression of the idea of Sabbath, right? In the New Jerusalem, we gather around a banquet table, having had our shelter, our food, our clothing, even our light provided by God himself, and we celebrate God's works and the redemption of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And I'm just guessing somebody at that banquet table is going to say, look what God has done. It's very good. So Sabbath is a meaningful practice in the here and now, but it's also one which points to a greater day when the Sabbath will not be just a weekly practice and retreat, but an eternal reality to be enjoyed. So Sabbath identifies us and forms us as people of God. It's not something to be obligated to do. It's something that we are free to do in Jesus So if we are people learning to live lives dependent on the Lord of the Sabbath, we should recognize that we've been given the gift of freedom to participate in the Sabbath. This is not a collection of rules to follow or an obligation to meet. Something It's a privilege that we have as children of God. Um, So if you're anything like me, you already knew most of what I said, but you struggle to really put it into practice in everyday life. Life And so I have here, here a few practical suggestions for getting started and kind of recovering the practice of Sabbath rest. This is not my list of 39 rules. These are just suggestions. Take them or leave them. I hope you find them helpful. Here's number one. Choose one day each week to practice Sabbath rest. Choose a day. Uh, some people say they want to observe the Sabbath on Saturday or from Friday night to Saturday night because this is the Jewish pattern that has existed for a really long time and it makes sense to to keep that Sabbath day holy. Others have said, well, Jesus was raised from the dead on a Sunday and that has often been the day when Christians choose to worship and so we're going to treat that as the Sabbath. These are both, in my opinion, pretty good ideas. Some people, though, have to work on Sundays and... You know, maybe you're a doctor or something. It doesn't make sense to quit saving people's lives on Sunday or Saturday. And so you take a Monday or a Friday off or something like that. A lot of pastors do that. Um, To me, I don't have any particular conviction that you need to be observing the Sabbath on this day or that. Maybe some of you do, and you can come correct me later. That's fine. Uh, But for me, I do think it's helpful to choose a consistent day, something that can work for you as kind of a routine schedule if possible. And I do think this should be a day when other believers are practicing Sabbath too because there is a communal aspect to this. Uh, so choose a day. Number two, trust God's work. Make the Sabbath day a time when you are going to choose throughout the day to trust God rather than your own efforts. And this could have a lot of different applications, but maybe this day you don't check your email and you don't try to check up on household chores and you don't make this the day when you catch up on your errands. Um, You choose this day to not think of yourself as being your occupation. Instead, you actively choose to trust God with your needs and with your identity. You choose to trust that God is going to provide for your finances. You choose to trust that God is going to enable you to accomplish all the many things you have to do later in the week. Then you forget about them for one day. Here's another one. Rejoice in God. Make the Sabbath day a time to rejoice in what God has done. 
There are so many ways to do this. I think a pretty good idea is to spend time in nature, right? Seventh day of, God, of creation, God is enjoying the things he has made. You can participate in that. It's a pretty good idea maybe to go for a hike and say, what can I look at here and say, this is very good. And what can you learn about the very good God who made this thing? Um, so learning about the natural world, I think, is a really great Sabbath practice. There are other things you could do, though. You could read Scripture. You could read the Psalms. And every time the psalmist points at God's works and thanks God, you say thank you, too. That would be a pretty good thing to do. Or you could say, what has God done this week? I'm going to write down a list. Maybe that becomes your own psalm. Right? What things can you rejoice in? What have you seen God doing around you? What about music? The Sabbath is a great day for making music. You could write a song. You could sing church songs. You could sing What a Wonderful World and do your best or worst Louis Armstrong impersonation. It's a pretty good idea for the Sabbath. Um, what about eating? You could eat something delicious with people you love and enjoy it and thank God for it. Celebrate the good life. This is not at all about hedonism. It's a celebration of what God has done, of his presence with you. It's a picture of where we are headed. Number four, this is a word of caution. Avoid false rest. We live in a society which confuses escape with rest. Often we are tempted to replace true Sabbath rest with some temporary escape, which may do nothing at all to restore our souls. It may not help us to trust in God or to rejoice in God. We may be tempted to do things like binging on television or aimlessly scrolling through social media or buying things. These can be attempts to avoid trusting and rejoicing in God. Or... You can be driven towards false rest by taking the approach of the Pharisees. You could come up with a list of things. This is what it means for me to keep the Sabbath and become so devoted to keeping your list that you forgot to actually trust in God and to enjoy him. A good rule of thumb is if you start thinking that following your list of rules is going to get you some points with God, you're probably off base. Or worse, if you start thinking, I've got this list of rules and these people need to be following them, you might be way off base. So be willing to experiment with what helps you to truly rest in a way that helps you to trust and rejoice in God. It may not be the same last week as it is this week. Uh, that's okay. So here's, here's the big idea. The practice of Sabbath rest is the antidote to our culture's toxic need to be busy. In a culture that says, worship your own comfort and trust in your own efforts, the practice of Sabbath rest teaches us instead to enjoy God and to trust in him. And I hope that you can do that today. I'm going to invite the band back up and uh, Val Harvey as well. Val is going to lead us in a time of reflective prayer, thinking about uh, what it means to practice Sabbath rest. Jesus invites us, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. Lean on me, learn from me. You will find rest for your souls. We're going to spend some time in quiet prayer, reflecting on Jesus' invitation, reflecting on what Jesse has shared, and also how the Spirit is speaking to you personally. So let's quiet ourselves. 
I'm going to guide you with some questions and then leave some quiet time for you to listen to God and to respond to him. That might be confession. It might be asking for help. It might be realizing something new about God or yourself. Or it might be committing to make some needed changes in heart attitudes and behaviors. Jesus' invitation to come in your weariness and lean, learn, find rest for your soul. Talk with him about where you need that, what rest would be like for you. Spend some time with God reflecting on how your busyness gets in the way of trusting God. How does busyness feed your own sense of importance or self-sufficiency? How does busyness build your identity apart from God? Pray about being encircled and resting in the loving arms of God. Pray about our identity being in Jesus. We bear the image of God. God invites us to let go and trust him. In reflecting on your Sabbath practice, where is joy present?
Considering the example of God on the seventh day of creation, talk to him about practicing more joy, more gratitude, more satisfaction, and about experiencing more wonder. What might that look like in your life? How hopeful are you in life? On the Sabbath, we are reminded that God can be trusted that God delights in us, that God is present with us always, that we are free from sin and death. Talk with God about any doubts you have and about where your hope needs to grow. How is God nudging you to free yourself from your busyness, compulsions, agendas, and to rest in him and his work and to enjoy him and his creation more freely? Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. God, help us to taste your goodness and give us the grace to respond to you in the very personal ways that you speak to each of us. Amen. Amen, amen. If you would like somebody to pray with you, for you, for any reason at all, uh, we have people down front here wearing these conspicuous pink name tags. If you guys could wave your hands a little bit. Like, hi, hi, so people can see them. Anyway, there we go. People are down front here with conspicuous pink name tags who would be happy to pray with you. Um, I'm going to leave you today with another story from the Gospels uh, from Luke chapter 10.
While Jesus and his disciples were traveling, they entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed them into her home. She had a sister named Mary, who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. That's my prayer for you today, that you can be a Mary, to be able to sit and enjoy the presence of the Lord for the rest of this day. God bless you. Go in peace.